This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library. Thanks, everyone, for coming today. My name is Troy. I'm one of the librarians. Um, this is our first event for the spring semester in our one-book series, and uh, we're looking at um, Rebecca Sklut's uh, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, which um, in the fall has been a good text for us and uh, has given us some good themes to consider and uh, tie into a lot of courses. Um, today's event uh, starts to focus on a few different themes and pull some ideas out of the book. Uh, it's entitled Henrietta Lacks, Medical Research and the Politics of Trust. And uh, we're very happy to welcome our special guest, uh, Dr. Rick Kittles from the University of Illinois at uh, Chicago. Um, he's from their Department of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Kittles is a human geneticist who studies cancer and is also a pioneer in tracing African-American ancestry through DNA. Um, his uh, bachelor's is in biology from the Rochester Institute of Technology, and his Ph.D. is from George Washington uh, in uh, Washington, D.C. So with that, um, please give a round of applause and welcome to Dr. Kittles. All right, thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. and. Uh, uh, and talk about some um, very fascinating but sad uh, uh, information as it relates to uh, the emergence of what I call big science in, in uh, biomedical research. Um, so today I'm going to talk about uh, Henrietta Lacks and the uh, Rebecca Sklot's book uh, uh, about her and her family uh, and the events that happened uh, as it relates to her uh, passing of cervical cancer. And then what happened in terms of uh, those, uh, those cells uh, after she died and how they were used and how um, corporations emerged um, for, 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 uh, from selling um, and, and their profiting from those cells. And I'm going to place it into context uh, in terms of biomedical research, what we call big science, because uh, that's where we are now. You know, I'm sure we, you've all heard of the uh, Human Genome Project and uh, uh, the DNA research and personalized medicine, individualized medicine. A lot of that is um, emerging now, and uh, it's what we call big science, where um, uh, as much information that scientists can get, you know, we want. And so um, uh, there are some very uh, strong ethical issues um, that relate to that sort of uh, work. So I'll, I'll talk some about that. So I want to place this into some context. And so there, while, while Rebecca didn't talk about this in her book much, uh, the importance of Henrietta Lacks' cells were, um, had very um, uh, broad implications, uh, not just uh, to the scientists at Johns Hopkins. Um, when we look at uh, communities of color, we're talking about um, African Americans, Hispanic Americans, Native Americans, and uh, in some cases Asian Americans. Uh, they have poor health outcomes uh, for heart disease, uh, diabetes, asthma, cancer, uh, HIV and uh, AIDS, uh, infant mortality. And there are many reasons, uh, in fact, a, a plethora of reasons that uh, for these disparities. When we look through the literature, we see that African Americans have um, a higher incidence of mortality from uh, prostate uh, cancer, uh, breast cancer, cervical cancer. Uh, and, and much of it has to do with social economic factors, uh, behavioral factors, uh, economics, uh, insurance status or lack thereof, uh, access to care, um, uh, the lack of interest or apathy as it relates to uh, their health care, lack of education. Of course, medical literacy um, uh, plays a, a strong role, but then also unhealthy behavior. And um, a lot of the unhealthy behaviors that emerge in um, uh, minority communities emerge because of uh, inability to cope or deal with stress. And so let's say, for instance, individuals are stressed for whatever reason, um, uh, uh, poor job status or discrimination, um, uh, family issues, uh, you know, these behaviors that emerge uh, tend to be um, unhealthy, like smoking and drinking, uh, unhealthy uh, sexual behavior, uh, all of that leading to um, uh, poor health outcomes. And so I put this up because I wanted to place it into a more um, local context when we talk about uh, uh, social determinants of health. 
So I put up here a slide of um, uh, food deserts in Chicago. This is the city of Chicago. And I didn't say dessert. I said desert. <laughs> okay. So food deserts are areas that, uh, mainly in urban areas, and they're not just in Chicago but around the, the country, where there's lack of access to quality uh, food, produce, uh, good foods. And so you'll see a lot of, in these urban areas, a lot of these mom-and-pop shops that sell um, um, uh, preserved um, uh, high-salt canned goods and lack of fresh uh, produce and fruits are uh, in these communities. And so when you look in the city of Chicago where these food deserts are, they're in mainly areas where they're African-American and Hispanic communities, be it the west side or the south side of Chicago. You look at the north side, we don't see many food deserts uh, because Whole Foods and um, what's that spot called? Uh, uh, Farmer Joe's, Trader Joe's, Trader Joe's and all of that, that have really good uh, um, um, uh, choices, food choices, and options for individuals to purchase. Uh, we don't see them down on the south side and on the, uh, on the west side. And there are many reasons for that. But the outcomes are pretty severe. One looks at the average BMI, which is body mass index, uh, uh, rates of obesity, and then also food balance scores worse in these communities. And so, um, as I mentioned before, while we talk about health disparities, a lot of it may have more to do with social economic determinants and less to do with biology. Uh, and I also put this up to place uh, also into context. Uh, what, I'm gonna, what we're going to talk about as it relates to Rebecca Sklote's book. Uh, a study, I guess a couple of years ago, and it was published in the Journal of Black Psychology, looked at um, uh, the um, correlation of perceived discrimination and the quality of health. So these were clinics where individuals were either African American or Hispanic, uh, and they asked them certain questions, the patients, about um, discrimination. And so this is what we call perceived discrimination. This is just the thought that you were discriminated against, your perception of being discriminated against. And what they found was the patients who felt, uh, who had this, uh, felt discriminated against had poorer health outcomes. In fact, the general health was lower uh, after four or 16 weeks. The number of chronic diseases was more in those individuals. And the patient's perception of uh, uh, of their uh, satisfaction with their doctor was also uh, decreased. So discrimination, as I mentioned before, plays also a strong role in one, how one understands their health. And so we have these realities of, of, of health disparities. And so we know that research is important to eliminate health disparities. And, however, many communities of color have this mistrust and bad experiences uh, with uh, researchers and government agencies. So there's a feeling of what we call stigmatization, stereotyping that occurs, in many of these communities, and a lot of it is because of the history of research in um, underserved uh, minority communities. And so there has been, his, um, uh, over the last 10 years um, from the government, a systematic call for building and maintaining trust uh, between communities of color and researchers. And so one, uh, one method is called community-based participatory research. This is where um, the scientists, let's say, at a university go out into the community and have open dialogue with community to see what the issues are in the community and then to see if there can be joint pro, um, uh, research projects developed uh, and um, to um, help eliminate disparities uh, because when there is this collaboration between the community and researchers, it becomes, the, the research becomes more um, accepted by the communities. So, why is this so important now? Well, I think because of the history of, as I mentioned before, of research in various communities across the world have led to um, the establishment of rules of, of operation as it relates to research. Uh, and researchers have to follow these rules. Researchers have to follow these rules. Institutions like universities and colleges uh, that sponsor these research uh, um, uh, projects also have to follow these rules. And the federal government had, um, has established these guidelines um, because of the bulk of the research being done is using federal or state dollars. They've established these guidelines. Um, but before they were established, and I'll, I'll get into what they look like now, um, there were some very severe historical um, uh, incidents uh, where um, uh, 
they, their individuals were either hurt um, by the research or, or stigmatized. And so we can go all the way back to the Nuremberg War Trial, actually in 47, where there were actual criminal proceedings against some leading German scientists who uh, uh, participated in research on, on uh, Jewish uh, individuals and also other German um, individuals from their community. And then, of course, one big study that African Americans always um, uh, talk about, uh, even if they know very little about, it's almost like it's just ingrained in the minds of African Americans, is the syphilis study in Tuskegee, uh, Alabama, which went on from 1932 to 1972. It was a part of a, a research project um, conducted by the U.S. Public Health Service um, where um, Tuskegee County in Alabama um, was uh, the center uh, of a, a study of 600 low-income African-American males, 400 of whom were infected with uh, syphilis and were monitored for 40 years. Now, some of you may say, well, why would you do something like that? Well, at the time, in, in uh, 1932, um, uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, racism that was occurring, uh, not just in, uh, in the streets, but also in um, universities uh, and among scientists. And for some strange reason, uh, the scientists believed that syphilis behaved differently in African Americans than it did in whites. And so they um, charted a, uh, a course for this study called The Natural History of Syphilis in the American uh, Negro Male. And when you say you're looking at the natural history, that's from start to finish. So you follow the course of this uh, um, disease in these individuals. And as I mentioned, they were monitored, some of them, for over 40 years, uh, many of whom died from syphilis, even after the, um, uh, the drug uh, penicillin was known to um, cure syphilis. They were not given uh, uh, penicillin, uh, really cheap and, and um, um, uh, what we call effic efficacious uh, uh, drug. One of the strange things about this uh, study in syphilis was um, uh, they actually involved African-American uh, um, uh, nurses uh, that were involved in recruiting and following up and monitoring these men, also African-American uh, doctors. What's also sad is that this was in the um, same area where there is a major African-American historically black uh, college and university called Tuskegee uh, College at the time. Now it's called Tuskegee Institute. The, um, um, one of the main reasons why they used Tuskegee County as the site for this research was because um, there was a board meeting at the university, and um, many of the board members were actually, well, were actually worked for the federal government, and they either were involved in the uh, U.S. Public Health Service or they were or some um, administrator for the government, and they asked, uh, these guys actually um, some of the faculty members. Uh, what, would, what is the biggest issue that you guys have here at the university? And um, uh, they replied, well, uh, if, it's not, if it wasn't for this blood-borne disease called um, uh, syphilis, we believe that um, we would probably have a bigger impact in terms of educating our community. Uh, a lot of the community has succumbed to this disease. And so they said, well, why don't we study this, uh, uh, this disease? And in fact, if you think about it, that's what we call CBPR, community-based participatory research, where scientists ask the community what the issues are. And so this was one of the first uh, cases, uh, early cases of CBPR. Uh, however, it was a bad case of CBPR. So as I mentioned, free medical exams were given. Um, however, the participants were never told really what they had. They just knew they had bad blood. And there are some uh, pretty decent books written about uh, uh, the, that history. And then even though the, the proven cure of penicillin became available in 1950, uh, uh, the study continued and the participants were denied treatment. And it wasn't until 72-73 when the study was stopped uh, by the U.S. Department of Health, Education, and Welfare after a news story broke about the, um, um, some of these men that were surviving that had survived over, over 40 years. And uh, uh, due to the publicity, the um, federal government stopped the study. Uh, this woman here, actually in the middle, that's Nurse Rivers, the nurse 
who was involved, a major, had a major role in the study. She was really the broker in the community. She was from the community. She knew those men very well, and the men respected her. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned before, they, was, uh, they were given free health care, and that was big at the time. Some may call that coercion now, where you say, well, if you participate in this study, we'll give you something for free that you need. Uh, and uh, now, of course, we couldn't do anything like this because of the federal regulations. So let's get to the story of Henrietta Lacks. Very fascinating story. And I, I became interested in, in, in her story when I was in uh, college. I was in, uh, I think, first year, second year of college in Rochester, New York. And I was taking a course in uh, tissue culture. And uh, one of the main cells we worked with during that semester was the HeLa cell line, H-E-L-A. And I was told by my instructor that that stood for, that, that was the initials of a woman who um, donated those cells, she said. She said they were donated. <laughs> Henrietta Lacks. So I wrote it down in my notebook. I remember going back and looking at it, and I said, wow. And they, it was a black woman from, um, uh, she said, from Baltimore, and she had cervical cancer. And that's a cervical cancer cell line uh, that has been growing um, uh, ever since her death in 1951. Well, Henrietta, as I mentioned, was born uh, in, in 1920 in Baltimore. Uh, actually, in Virginia, I'm sorry. She lived in Baltimore with her family. Uh, her um, extended family were tobacco farmers uh, in uh, Virginia, uh, Maryland area. Um, and she married her first cousin uh, by the name of David. Uh, that's not uncommon. In fact, back then, a lot of folks married first cousins, second cousins. So that wasn't surprising. Uh, they had five children. Um, but what was surprising was uh, how David uh, behaved. In fact, it's a picture of him there. Very sharp uh, uh, folk, uh, uh, Henrietta and David, as you can see from the photo. But David was what we call a, um, uh, a philanderer, <laughs> for, for lack of a better word. So he liked to, uh, to tip out at night. And he would come back with, um, you know, STDs. And um, uh, he, in fact, um, had given uh, Henrietta STDs over and over, in many cases over their marriage. And then um, uh, sooner or later she ended up with what we call um, um, HPV, which is the uh, virus that actually causes uh, uh, cervical cancer. So that is why, um, that's one of the reasons why she got cervical cancer, obviously. But also one of the reasons why her cells were able to continue to grow. So what happened was back in, um, about, I guess it was around 1950, she started having what we call woman's issues. She had a lot of bleeding, a lot of pain, and she went to the doctor at Johns Hopkins University. Now, Johns Hopkins University at the time was um, a segregated hospital. There was a black ward and a white ward. Uh, those, uh, the white ward obviously had much better care. Um, uh, many of the individuals in the white ward paid for this um, uh, medical service. Uh, however, the black ward was um, what they call charity care, and that's where the bulk of the research was going on. Um, most of the people who went to Hopkins in the black ward uh, for service could not pay for um, the, their medical um, uh, services. So. 1951, she's diagnosed with um, uh, cervical cancer stage one, which is one of the earlier stages. Her gynecologist was a doctor named uh, Richard Talind, who was um, a very well-established um, um, gynecologist. Uh, he did a um, biopsy. So he took scrapings from her cervix and um, took it to the pathologist. They diagnosed it as uh, cervical cancer. He then went back to her and said, we, you know, we'd like to take another scraping. Um, uh, and she, of course, let them. He then took that, uh, those samples to a doctor named George Gay. And Gay at the time was doing a lot of research uh, in tissue culture. He was a, a, a cell biologist. So he was doing a lot of tissue culture work, working with these cells in the laboratory under a hood, growing these cells under sterile conditions. The main reason was to, or the main part of his research was he wanted to, uh, to um, establish a cell line that grew indefinitely. And he 
had uh, many attempts before he got access to her cells, uh, and they failed. I think the longest cells that he had growing were maybe two months or something like that, maybe eight weeks, six to eight weeks. But they would ultimately die. But then when uh, Talind gave Gay those cells from uh, uh, Miss Lax, uh, they continued to grow. And um, Gay became w uh, well known for um, the establishment of that cell line that he called HeLa, H-E-L-A. His laboratory then came up, became uh, very prominent, in, um, and he was asked to speak all over the world and about his research. And uh, he knew very little about Henrietta Lacks and her family. Now, if we go back to what I said earlier, Henrietta didn't, and her family didn't have a lot of money. They were very poor, and they were illiterate also. Five children, um, 51, she's diagnosed with cervical cancer, and within a year she's dead. She died from it. They tried many different treatments, and in fact, um, back then they used um, radiation, these radioisotopes, that they would put into a tube like, uh, like a flashlight. And they would insert that into the, um, into the vagina and either um, sew it next so that the radiation was next to her cervix, or they would tape it in so that it wouldn't move. And uh, obviously that was very painful. The radiation not only caused uh, cell damage to her cervix, uh, but also to other parts uh, in, in, in of her um, abdomen area. So um, she ended up dying uh, mainly because of the treatment that she was getting, not because of this um, cancer for the most part. So anyway, uh, uh, Gay continues to grow the cells, and he starts sending the cells out to different labs around the world because, you know, he published on it. Everybody was excited because these cells grew indefinitely, and uh, they wanted access to it. Now, at the time, scientists would do experiments with cells in the laboratory, but they would be very quick experiments because these cells would die quickly, right? But and here's a situation where you can do a, a major set of experiments because these cells are going to continue to grow forever. And so people were quite excited by that. And so, you know, as I uh, had mentioned about these growing indefinitely, um, uh, these malignant cancer cells uh, have qualities that distinguish them from normal cells. Uh, the main one is that they're immortal. And what immortalized her cells was that HPV P uh, virus. And they also grow more rapidly. So within a 24-hour period, they double. And so if you start with 10, <laughs> then you get 20, and then more and more and more. So they continue on and on. Over time, um, uh, you would have to split them and freeze them and, and all of that. But the process was uh, developed during this time period for um, uh, growing these cell lines. So the first immortal cell line, uh, and it was important because, for many reasons, and I, I'll explain all of them shortly, but at the time that Gay was sending these cells out, um, they were being used for many things. Uh, at the time, polio was big. This is 1950s. Polio was uh, a major um, uh, problem throughout the, the world. And uh, a polio vaccine was developed. However, in order to um, uh, um, grow the vaccine up in large numbers so that it could be distributed throughout the world, they needed what we call a vector, something to grow it in. And they tried many different vectors. None of them worked except for the HeLa cell, because it was pretty, what we call, robust. And so they grew the polio vaccine in the cells. The cells grew. They then um, um, isolated the vaccine and distributed it. And it worked well. So the federal government says, we're going to put several million dollars in an institution somewhere in this country so that they could grow HeLa cells and with, this vac with the polio virus so we can de develop these vaccines and ship them all over the world. And guess where they put this mass production center at? They put it at Tuskegee Institute, which is quite, quite strange. So here you have the Tuskegee syphilis study. You have one of the major HBCUs, and then now you have the HeLa cell line that, uh, from an African-American woman uh, that is now being mass-produced uh, for the polio vaccine development. 
So over a period of years, they were African-American scientists at Tuskegee growing these cells up uh, with the the polio virus for the vaccine. And they not only grew it up in big vats, but they also distributed it throughout the world. So they mailed these, um, uh, the vaccine throughout the world. And if it wasn't for their work, we would have uh, polio would still be around, actually, because uh, they worked very hard at that time to send out these, um, uh, the vaccine throughout the world. And, uh, and it pretty much was eradicated. The HeLa cell line was also used for studies of the, uh, on the effects of the atomic bomb in radiation. Uh, as I mentioned before, it was a human cell line, right? And it grew indefinitely. So you can actually see what the damage was to human cells from radiation. And they looked at the DNA. They looked at some of the cellular morphology, some of the proteins, all of that in the cells. Uh, all of those studies were done using the HeLa cells. Also advances in in vitro fertilization, advances in cloning, advances in gene mapping, because back when I was in uh, um, uh, uh, undergrad, I was in college, we were using HeLa cells to explore, um, uh, we were doing uh, chromosome karyotyping, looking at chromosomes, trying to map particular regions of these chromosomes. And so um, that cell line was very, very important in that. Also, cancer research, something I'm very involved in now, and virus research. And in fact, uh, what we know about HPV, the bulk of it came from understanding uh, and and studying the HeLa cell line. So all in all, these cells were were brought and sold for for millions, billions of dollars. After, and I'll tell you how this emerged. So the mass production uh, um, uh, factory was set up at Tuskegee. And it was funded by the federal government and run by scientists at Tuskegee. And they were shipping it out. And so then businesses, companies, biotech companies, noticed that, number one, you could grow these cells and you could ship them and you could make money. And so several companies emerged, one of which is what we call ATCC, American-type cell culture. It was a company still around. Where um, that got a hold of the cells and started selling them, distributing them out to scientists all over the world. And so you can buy the Hill of Cell Line for, you know, a little vial of it for a couple hundred dollars. You can, and, and, and the, there'll be frozen pellets of the cells, and you can um, you, you do your research uh, uh, on those cells. And remember, they'll continue to grow. So you'll get a little vial, and within a matter of weeks, you will have trillions. <laughs> In fact, um, many labs in Russia uh, back in the uh, 70s and 80s were contaminated because of he- with the HeLa cell line. So they had HeLa cells in their lab, and they had other cells too. And because of the robustness of these cells, they overgrew and contaminated other cell lines. And in fact, there have been many papers written in scientific journals where the scientists thought they were characterizing uh, a different cell line and it ended up being HeLa <laughs> because of the contamination issue. So it's a very robust cell line. And as I mentioned, it was um, bought and sold for billions of dollars. Companies have, are still uh, selling these. Now, get back, let's go back to the family. So uh, Henrietta Lacks was not given what we call a consent form because at the time there were no rules in consent in terms of research. If your doctor asks for a biospecimen and you said okay, then it was his. And uh, Johns Hopkins made a lot of money from uh, the cell line. However, the family, as I mentioned before, very um, poor, illiterate, uh, and really had no idea that their, um, that th- that their mother or their wives, uh, um, wife's um, uh, cells were, were actually taken and used for research, uh, were just completely baffled when they heard later on, uh, decades later, uh, uh, some of the discoveries and how much money was made from, from the cell line. Many of them today uh, lack health insurance, which is quite shocking. Uh, a family that contributed so much to our understanding of science, uh, uh, and, and, uh, and in particular cancer research, um, and they can't even you know, get uh, quality health care. This is written up by uh, Rebecca Sploat. There's a picture of her there. 
the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks. She's, uh, this is interesting because she's a, um, um, uh, she's faculty, I believe, in Tennessee or Kentucky and um, at one of the universities there and, and spent a lot of time with her family, like years with her family. And she was just given access uh, um, that nobody else was, was given. And for the most part, that African-American family, the Lacks, are just like every other African-American family. And they're a very hardworking group. Um, uh, they uh, are very tight, close-knit, and are very protective of each other. Uh, and then also very suspicious of, of the government and uh, big institutions like Johns Hopkins. And so um, for her to be given access to uh, do these interviews and talk to people and, and, and doctors and all of that and get medical records, it was a, a major, um, was major. And I was excited when I saw this. I actually met with Rebecca, I guess, a year and a half ago, about a year ago, actually, and um, talked to her about this, uh, the work. Um, how many people have read the book? Okay, good, good. So I, I really enjoyed it. I'm sure you did too. The only thing that I, the only issue I had was that Rebecca didn't put it into any context of race. So race wasn't really discussed in the book. And in, in particular, the connection with uh, Tuskegee uh, could have been, I think, um, much more extensive. Um, and um, we know that the family was very suspicious. But I think if you just read the book and not understand the context of race in America, you probably wouldn't understand why. So that's why I felt that she could have went a little further um, uh, dealing with race. But one of the things that Rebecca has done is she set up a, a, a website where people can go online and donate uh, 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 to the family. Um, I think it's either an educational fund or a fund for um, health care for some of the... Um, uh, grandchildren of Henrietta Lacks because Rebecca was quite uh, criticized for because it was a for a while a number one bestseller in the New York Times and so there was a lot of criticism that she that Henrietta was exploited once again in a sense uh, because the family members didn't uh, get anything out of this uh, book and um, just like they didn't get anything out of her cells uh, so Rebecca responded by setting up the uh, the website so this is actually a picture of, of the HeLa cells dividing in the laboratory. I love this picture because it shows, uh, and I talked to the students about um, um, uh, mitosis, the divide, division of the cells, and how the chromosomes line up in the middle, and you have these spindles, and uh, the, the, you see those, the chromosomes in green there. They're about to split. They've doubled, and they're about to split, and it's going to be two separate cells. And this happens so much in the laboratory um, uh, when you work with HeLa cells, that it's it's quite easy to get nice pictures like this. So, as I mentioned before, now we have these um, federal regulations for um, how to do research uh, with human subjects, and um, uh, one of the um, outcomes of these uh, of unethical research is now this sort of this need to try to better protect. Um, uh, research subjects and also the community and so there's different levels of community participatory research um, and it goes from the notification endorsement community advice consent and then the community the top um, level being the research even originating from the community which as I've said before um, is an example of what happened uh, with the Tuskegee study there was um, there was a need to the folks in the community wanted to know what was going on as it related to syphilis in their community. And so, as I mentioned before, it's an example of CBPR. And um, there's some really interesting um, uh, stories that have emerged. There's several good books about this study and how these men were followed and why they weren't uh, told exactly what they had. Um, and so this is the South. This is the rural South. And many of these men, they had these um, folk, there were a lot of folklore about disease and um, nobody wanted to talk about particular diseases in particular something like cancer but then also uh, an STD and so they knew that something was wrong with them and they just said it was bad blood they had no idea that it was sexually transmitted they had no idea that there was a cure uh, once penicillin was, uh, was set up 
So what are some of the barriers, CBPR? Uh, respect for community, um, willingness to share power between institutions and the community, and then um, the researchers' inability to accept another one's perspective. And so all of these are what we call barriers to CBPR research. So here we are now in, in the emergence of what we call big science um, because we've, we've gone through the... Um, the troubled historical time, right, of the unethical research. We have these regulations now that are in place, and we're trying to now re, um, we're trying now to go back into the communities and get them excited about research. And it's important because we're going towards what we call personalized medicine uh, in the next five or ten years. Uh, and some of you will 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 get the benefits of this and. Some of your ch children will definitely, well, all of your children definitely will. But what's, what's, going, what's, what's emerging now is we're looking at genetic risk and how genes play a role in disease. Most diseases have a genetic underpinning to them. For instance, all cancer is genetic. And so when we go towards personalized medicine and use our understanding of the person's genetics or genetic background, it could help in diagnostics. It could help in pharmacogenetics or the how efficacious, how efficacious certain drugs are. Because you, I don't know if you notice or not, but not everybody can take the same drugs. <laughs> There's some people, you go to their house and they're, let's say, on di they're, they're diabetic. And you'll go in their cabinet and it's full of drugs. And you're saying, why are you taking all these? And they say, well, I'm not taking all of them. I've, I've had to go through all of these different ones to see which one worked. Physicians are almost like shooting in the dark as it relates to not only diagnosis, but trying to come up with the best drugs that work best for you. And we know that genes play a role, and that's the emerging field of pharmacogenetics the development of new drugs, and then also risk assessment. How do we assess one's risk for this or that? And why should you care? Well, because we are now in this era of personalized medicine and where folks need to take a more active role in clinical decision-making. As I said before, genetic tests are available for different heart diseases and heart failure. There are certain genetic tests that are available. However, if all communities aren't involved in this, Genetic medicine may actually increase health disparities. And by that, I mean this stuff is expensive. This is big science. This is technology, science and technology. It costs a lot of money. And just like I showed you the food desert, there's also the clinic desert, okay? Meaning there are certain areas on the south side and on the west side where there are lack of clinics, and those clinics that are there lack the technology that some of the bigger clinics, let's say on the Gold Coast have, where they can do a lot of this genetic testing. And so the technology is rapidly advancing. I mean, I get so excited when I, when I, when I, um, I look at the, the technology that's emerging or that has emerged over the last five years. We can look at samples from the patient, whether they're blood samples or a biopsy, let's say from a liver or from skin or from um, uh, 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 the prostate and within a matter of hours analyze every gene in those cells and see which ones are being overexpressed or underexpressed. That's quick. The technology is there for us to do that. The problem is managing all of that data because we're talking about thousands, tens of thousands of genes and also tens of thousands of individuals in some cases. So the management of all that data is, is cumbersome. But then also being able to answer the right questions with the data. If you're asking the same questions you've been asking, you're going to have some problems. And so now the government is calling for what we call a, a cohort study, U.S. perspective cohort study. Actually, um, before President Obama was um, elected president, when he was senator, he put a bill out. It wasn't... Um, wasn't passed, but he, he did <laughs> present it. <laughs> it was um, to it was part of his bill was 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 dealing with research and bio, biomedical research in particular and pharmacogenetics, and he wanted in the bill, which I think is wrong, but this is what was in it, 
that every child born, uh, blood samples would be taken from every single child born in the United States and stored at the federal government so that they could look at the genetics of that individual and monitor his health over his lifetime. So then, if you, from every child born, I mean, that's millions, right? That's a lot of data. And if you monitor the health over the lifetime, you can actually see where these risk factors are. And it's not just genetics. They were going to look at diet and all these other things. This is in a big bill. And he said that the, um, the place where all this data should be held is at NIH, the National Institutes of Health. And I was like, wow, that's, that's crazy. Because <laughs> I know these guys. <laughs> I don't think I would want my child's DNA in their hands. <laughs> but anyway. We're now looking at how genes interact with drugs. I think this is a very, very important, fascinating area because um, it's part of um, the next, um, uh, the future, okay? And so ultimately you're going to go to your doctor or the pharmacist and you'll say, I need to take this drug, and they'll say, well, your doctor didn't say how much, and then they say, here's my sequence. And they'll know based on your DNA sequence what you should and shouldn't take, what you're allergic to and all of that. And so patients with the same diagnosis, right, all patients with the same diagnosis, there will be some people like those dark blue that will respond to the drug, and then there will be some people who you give them the same drug, it will be toxic. You see it in orange, and then those people in brown, dark brown, they won't respond at all. And so that's where we are right now. Everybody's giving the same drug as if they're all going to respond. Like, for instance, I have allergies. I take Claritin, um, not allergies, I have, yeah, I have allergies. <laughs> Claritin D. I take Claritin D. It works for me. My daughter has allergies. She doesn't take Claritin D. It doesn't work for her. She takes Zyrtec. <laughs> okay, I can't take that. It doesn't work for me. Okay, she shares half of my DNA. At least she better share half of my DNA. <laughs> she shares half of my DNA. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? Even within families, certain individuals can't take the same drugs within the same family. So ultimately what we want to do is find out who's going to not respond and treat them with an alternate dose or alternate drug, right? And then those that will, you treat them with the conventional dose or drug. It's real simple. And it will, that, just, just this by itself, will decrease the cost of health care enormously because I don't care who you are, you go look in certain homes and you look in their medicine cabinets, you will see drugs that they stop taking after a week. And they continue to go trial and error, trial and error. Let's talk about DNA collection because this also brings us to where we left off with Henrietta Lacks. Now remember, she had no, she didn't consent, she had no knowledge of what was going on with her cells once she went into the Hopkins. Now we have certain rights, but now we are really aggressively asking for more genetic information because we find that it's important, right? So this DNA collection, the Fourth Amendment, the right for people to be secure in their persons against unreasonable searches or seizures, right? That's the security blanket that we all have. However, if you smoke cigarettes, you chew gum, you spit it out in the street, you have DNA that's left on that cigar, cigarette, or chewing gum. And once you spit it out and you walk away, it's open access. In fact, there, some of you, when you get up, are going to leave hair and skin cells on the chair or under the floor. If I had a vacuum, I could clean it up, take it to the laboratory, and analyze some of your DNA. So we all are just disposing our DNA all the time, right? But what is interesting is who's looking at this DNA? And for the most part, it's law enforcement. And so there's these offender indexes. There are certain states where if you do a felony, felony, yeah, <laughs> you get arrested for a felony and, you, and you're convicted, your DNA is taken and it's put into the felon database. And there are certain countries in Europe where even if you're arrested, whether you're um, uh, guilty or not, you're in that database, okay? Law enforcement wants this because they think it's important in solving crimes. 
They also go after abandoned DNA, and you see it on CSI all the time. CSI might be science fiction, but it, it's true to some extent. And then familial searches, what does that mean? Well, remember, we get half of our DNA from our mother and the other half from our father. So we share half of our DNA. That's why your mother says you look like your daddy or you act like your daddy. And I would say, yeah, I hope I look and act like your <laughs> daddy. <laughs> but that's because you share DNA, genetic material. You also share half your DNA with your siblings. So if you have a brother or a cousin who's just, you know, one of those criminals. <laughs> Every family has a, cr a criminal in it, right? Somewhere in the family tree. The federal government can actually use DNA from your, a family member to see how much of a match uh, uh, and, and find um, and use that in court. So familial searches are also uh, very, very um, um, uh, useful in law enforcement. So as I mentioned, abandoned DNA. We don't even think about it. Imagine if you dropped like your social security number like every day, five times a day, somewhere. You just dropped it, written down a piece of paper somewhere. It'd make you a little uncomfortable, wouldn't it? <laughs> Lick a stamp. DNA's been taken off the back of stamps. I don't even blow my nose. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Let me give you an example. A bandage was removed from a defendant and discarded by the emergency medical uh, workers. And it was considered abandoned and used as evidence in a murder case. In um, 2003, Seattle police sent a letter to John, who was a suspect, and asked him to send the letter back, to respond and send it back in the... And he licked the stamp. And they, that's how he got his DNA. Very smooth, huh? <laughs> Collection of abandoned DNA from family members. So you may not have the suspect in hand, but you have family members around. You can see, because you share DNA, if you have DNA from a crime scene, you can use that information. These low stringency, what they call low stringency searches or low stringency tests, it doesn't have to be 100% match, but if it's high enough, that would suggest your relative then that would be um, useful. There are so many cases. Here, um, um, DNA on a brick was used to kill a truck driver. Um, was used uh, uh, because the DNA that the person had on his hand was placed was on the brick when he threw it, and um, and that was used. So then we have the um, dragnets and the profiling. That's that's, um, that narrows down the suspects. So let, let me give you an example. There are many different studies around the country where certain communities volunteer. Have anybody ever heard of the, um, the study, the Framingham study of heart disease in Framingham, um, is it Connecticut? New Hampshire. New Hampshire, right. Somewhere in uh, New England, yeah. So that's a community. Thousands of individuals participated in this study where they gave DNA, uh, blood samples DNA, and they're followed for heart disease, okay, for like five, ten years. There's another study called the Dallas Heart Study. There's one called the Jackson Heart Study in Jackson, Mississippi, okay? So there are many studies like that all over the country. And they represent communities, and scientists go into the community just like they did in, um, with Tuskegee, and they study a particular disease. Well, the federal government, many law enforcement agencies want access to those databases because those databases uh, uh, could be quite useful. Let's say, for instance, in Framingham, there's a rape, or in Jackson, Mississippi, there's a murder. And they feel that their database isn't large enough, they then want access to that research database. And while they may, so they have all the genetic information for those individuals. They may not find an identical match, but it may be a partial match suggesting relatedness. So then they go in and subpoena the family and then, you know, look for the suspect. So, so that, that's how this profile and these dragnets uh, operate. And there's, there's, there's been a lot of concern about that because um, several reasons. Number one, it's going to decrease folks in terms of their enthusiasm to participate. But then also, it may also um, 
uh, be um, illegal. Now, you know, when you collect DNA from many individuals, these dragnets, um, so let's say all black males live in a particular region, um, if they agree um, so that it's not involuntary, uh, some, some believe that when they agree that it could be uh, a coerced uh, agreement. And many examples of that, too. The other thing is uh, sample retention, uh, how long these samples are, are stored. And um, there have been many different uh, um, companies that have emerged that um, provide storage of DNA material, genetic material. And these biobanks that are around. And actually, if you're in the Army, if the Department of Defense has their own biobank. So if you're in the Army, you're in their database. And uh, that database is used a lot in law enforcement. So how safe are your samples? Of course, if Facebook could be hacked, so so could these databases, right? Sloppiness, code breaking, um, the public access to genotypes, and then the direct law enforcement access. And then there's codes of confidentiality that uh, have emerged. But the major protector that we have uh, against any sort of illegal use of the genetic material is what we call GINA. That was the Genetic Non-Discrimination Act, okay? And it's, it's for all citizens except for the military. It prohibits group or individual health insurers from using a person's genetic information in setting um, eligibility or, or, or premium um, amounts. It prohibits health insurers from requesting or requiring genetic tests. Um, also, it protects against discrimination for employment. Um, and uh, so it's a pretty uh, decent uh, um, law. However, it still needs to go a bit further. I'm going to end with this because this is the future paradigm. As I mentioned, the, the, the technology, the science is, is, is really robust now and is quite useful. However, it has to be used um, uh, ethically. So we, it's what we call the four P's, predictive, personalized, preemptive, and participatory. And probably for me, the most important P is participation. Because if all communities aren't involved in this, then those chips, the data we get from the genetics, is just going to tell us, um, it's going to be useful just for certain populations, not for everybody. And I think it's important that we all um, uh, get involved in this and participate in this. However, we need to make sure that uh, everybody's protected. So if the equitable benefits from genetic medicine depend on um, population genetics, market economics, and most importantly on historical and cultural identities. Thanks. So if there's some questions, I'll, I'll take some. Yeah. The GINA? Yeah, Genetic Non-Discrimination Act. It was, um, it was passed, what was that? Uh, 08, 07? Yeah. It might have been 06. Somewhere between 06 and 08. I don't have the date there. Yes? Um, first of all, thank you for your research. It's really exciting to hear you know, everything you're saying, but uh, at the same time, while it's exciting, right. I mean, it's actually kind of scary you know, hear how you know, all this material can be used for a number of different things that information is used in terms of personalized medicine, that, then we have to be more concerned uh, about um, if Gina is, is protecting us enough. Because, you know, the big thing was um, if, we can, if, if we know that there are certain genes that increase risk for, let's say, heart failure, and 
we get your genetic information, we know that you're at risk, and let's say, for instance, your your um, insurance company gets a hold of it. I mean, they could drop you for that. I mean, so so that those protections are there. The, the main thing, the, the main issue, though, I think, in terms of in terms of what you're saying, I think it's important for everybody to be educated about the laws. Okay, so um, I, I mentioned that after um, Henry Lacks and and uh, Tuskegee, the federal government has set up these these stipulations, these guidelines, these rules. And so part of it is what we call informed consent. So before they can get access to any of your material, biological material, they have to consent you. They have to ask you for permission, right? And you have to sign it. And then they also have to tell you what they're going to do with it. And you have the right to say yes or no, okay? But now what's happening now, many hospitals, let's say you, you go to the hospital, you broke your arm, let's just say you go to the hospital. And... You go in to, you know, to intake and, and you fill out these forms, right? Some hospitals have, it's in small letters at the bottom, that any biological material that they collect, they will use for research. Now, if you don't read that accurately and you're hurrying up so that you can get your arm worked on, you've already consented. Do you see what I'm saying? So we have to be very careful about that. I mean, and, and more and more hospitals are doing that because we're finding that this material is useful for personalized medicine. Everybody wants to get to that point. All these, you know, hospitals and, and institutions want to get to the point where we can accurately assess one's risk and also determine which drugs are best. And the only way to do that is if they get more people to participate. And that's why many hospitals have that now. Okay? So you have to really be careful what you're signing. Right. Well, most places have what they call an opt-in, meaning if you don't sign it, you're not in. You have to opt-in. You have to sign it to get in. So, yeah, you can say, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to be a part of that. Yeah, you can. But some hospitals don't. And I'm not going to say which ones do which, but I do know here in, in Illinois that there are some that have what they call an opt-in, meaning you have to sign that in order to, for them to get access to yours. And then others, if you want treatment there, you, you, have, to, you have to sign it. There are, there are some hospitals like that. What do you do in a case like that if you really need treatment? So is your, aren't you being coerced? Some people think it's coercion. I mean, I think it's going to be up to the lawyers in court to say What's, what's really coercion? Because you can say, because the hospital can say you can go someplace else. And that's what they're saying. If I'm in the emergency room, I might not feel that way. <laughs> right? Right, right. You know that in the book on you have that Right. Right. Well, well, there, there have been some cases where, just like what he said, um, and, and these, these two guys said that the, the individual was educated enough to know that their information was going to be quite useful. And so they said, I will participate if I get access to certain downstream um, um, uh, revenue. And, uh, and so for the most part, scientists don't like that, and so they'll say, forget it. But there were certain cases where that happened. In fact, there was a case where a person had a, a rare uh, um, uh, cancer, and uh, their, um, their uh, genetic profile was useful in, in um, coming up with a, uh, a useful cure, okay? And uh, they didn't know initially that their material was being used and patented, okay? And once they found out, they took the, the, the university to court, and they won, okay? So they were able to get revenue. But um, because of how long this occurred with Henrietta Lacks, you know, what do they call that? Um, statute of limitations? Yeah, statute of limitations, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's beyond that. So, so you have to be educated enough to, and, and quick enough to sort of jump in and say, hey, you know, uh, something's wrong here. <laughs> Well, uh, I, I think I think if, if for instance you find um, let's say you find a gene, right? I, I don't think genes should be patented. 
But if you develop a useful diagnostic, so if you invent something surrounding that gene, then I think it could be used, but not just patenting genes. You know, early on in the Human Genome Project, scientists were just grabbing land, um, um, grabbing what we call real estate in the genome, just grabbing it and, and not having any sort of diagnostic, not even knowing what the function of that gene was. And so you can't do that anymore. I think that was, that was important that, you know, we, we not just take um, uh, ownership of these sequences uh, based on who found them first, but more in terms of the utility of the, of the uh, sequence. Of the utility of the sequence or something that's not the sequence itself, but the something that goes along with it. Right, right, right. Some diagnostic, let's say. That can't be done anymore. That was because of another set of laws. Uh, the, the, patent, the patent office changed the rules. <coughs> yeah. So that's the United States Patent Office yes. and the European community and Japan and gosh knows who else? I think the, um, what initially caused them to change it was other countries were, were you know, they were upset. I think the European, um, uh, many European countries were quite upset about it. Because remember, this is big science. And so you, only if you had money could you even get into this game, right? So the, the United States government put tens of millions of dollars into, actually hundreds of millions of dollars, into the Human Genome Project. And other countries weren't involved in that. And so it was like, you're just taking all of this information that we all have. Right, you're uh, taking public money, right. we're going to private. Right, exactly. That was another thing that was going on, too, yeah. Oh, back here, one. How does a person get access to it? Yeah. 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 Well, well you, one of the things that, um, okay, each institution that does this research, they have what they call a board, and that board is called the Institutional Review Board, IRB. And most IRBs um, frown upon research that's done where the investigators give back the information to the participants because they feel that, many participants wouldn't understand it and it would confuse them. And so I don't know which um, studies you're talking about, but for the most part, I would say 95% of the research done, the information is not given back to the participants. So it's more, it's, it's probably highly likely that you couldn't get access to it. Unless you were told up front, if you were told up front that you could like go to this website or we will send you newsletters or something like that, um, uh, for the most part, if it's not that, then you're not going to be able to get access to it. If, if, in fact, they have subpoenas and all of that, yeah. And that there have been cases where they have, yes. Hmm? Has any other line besides the HeLa line been shown to be immortal? Yeah. There have been a lot of immortal lines. Okay, so there's, uh, there's but that was the first one. That was the first one. Subsequent. That's right. That's right. So we have prostate cancer cell lines. We have uh, um, breast cancer cell lines, oh. liver cancer. We have all of these different cell lines now, but that was the first. That was the first. And, and it, what made it, that, that also um, was very insightful because we realized that it was, we could use viruses to immortalize cell lines. So actually, we can get a normal cell line from, let's say, your skin cell, let's say a normal skin cell, and we can insert viruses in it and immortalize it. Yeah. So that was when the, when the healing line came about. It was because of that human papilloma, HPV, virus being in there that it made it immortal and yes. right combination of right. Uh, iron house switches to uh, mm -hmm. make it go on and on and on forever. Yep. And from that, they were able to say, okay, you Infect cells with viruses from there on. Right. That was the key in saying, right. okay, now we got to move lines. That's right. That was quite, quite useful for that. Is, is, there, is there one more? Uh, yeah, I did have one more question. Is, uh, I'm interested in the idea of uh, food and clinic deserts. Food, yeah, food desert. Yeah, okay. okay. Um, now, is this only a function of uh, economic disparity or can this be? Well, I don't know, you know, I don't think, I, I think, the, the, right now, right now, let's say in Chicago, the only way it could be fixed is by laws, because Trader Joe's and Whole Foods is not going to come to the south side. I mean, they just, they're not. They said they're not. And so unless you force them to do it. 
So, um, uh, they, you know, many believe that um, that that community is is um, uh, uh, economically uh, too disadvantaged to afford the, that uh, you know their service. And it's the same thing with some of the clinics. Uh, so that's why there's a lack of clinics over there too. Right. 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 Yeah, yeah, there are a lot working. I've, I've in fact, um, our group has worked with with uh, with many of them. We've set up farmers markets uh, to bring farmers with you know with fresh food, uh, fresh produce and fruits to the south side as a way of you know um, uh, bridging that barrier. But uh, I, I don't think it, it could be bridged outside of some kind of law. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, assuming the, the correlation between medicine, big science, and, and economics, mm -hmm. and, um, and I, I mean, just to make a simple statement, um, this may be more of an opinion, but there's, um, there's more money in, in the treatment than the cure. Right, right, right. It's a double-edged sword. Right, right, right. Um, right, and also drug companies don't, they don't, um, market to the individual, they market to the community, to the whole population. You see what I'm saying? So for them even, individualized medicine wouldn't be important. They like it when everybody gets the same drug, because then they can sell more of it. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, so I was just wondering, you know, what your thoughts were. We're, you know, I think it's great that I think we should move more toward mm -hmm. preventative care um, as opposed to uh, focusing on symptoms. Right, right, um, treatments, right, right, right. You know, but given the nature of yeah, I see it as a very severe tension. I mean, there's, it's a very strong tension there in terms of, because science is moving in that direction. And scientists want that, physicians want that, but the corporations, the big pharma, they're, you know, it's going to mess up their whole business plan. Because it's not part of their business plan. And so until they restructure their business plan, it's going to be conflict. Um, and we see it right now even with the health care debates. I mean, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's about, you know, mo much of that health care reform was about prevention. It was about, you know, you know before illness. And there's been an enormous pushback on that. So, so I think that uh, uh, until that tension is resolved, it's, it's, it's going to be there. It's going to be very difficult. Yep. Thanks a lot. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.